Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you and good to be with everybody joining us online. Can you give a big warm welcome to everybody on live stream? We're so glad that you're with us and uh, hope to see you soon. For anybody who's brand new with us, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And before I jump into the message for today, one update, I've been giving updates each week about Generosity Sunday in December. And uh, over $127,000 was given for Generosity Sunday uh, just a little over a month ago. Well done. So grateful for the generosity of our house, which we've uh, given to, those, to organizations to help people stay in homes that are on the verge of becoming homeless, help some homeless organizations in our region. And uh, we had more than we anticipated. We've helped school teachers and uh, staff at Lincoln Middle School. But uh, with some of the extra that was available that didn't have some direction already given to it, um, some of you might know uh, that I'm so grateful for Scripture. So grateful for the Word of God, and we have, uh, uh, likely many of you might have multiple Bibles, and we've got it on our phone and all that, but there are places around the world that have zero access to Scripture, because the the Scripture has never actually been translated into their language. There are 3,617 languages around the globe that have little to no access to Scripture. There are just a little over 2,000 that have of those 3,600 that have zero access. Not a verse, not a word has been translated into their language. So in the last several years, several Bible translation organizations have come together to work together, and they have shortened the amount of time it will take to translate into those languages down to the next 10 years, which is profound. And the only thing missing is funding. So we, as a house, have contributed, and uh, they've kind of broken it down to the verse, the amount per verse. And so we have funded the translation of what equals the Sermon on the Mount to, to a group of people that do not have any access to Scripture. And it's a result of your generosity. And so thank you, and I believe that as a result, people are going to see and experience Jesus. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Our generosity together makes a difference. Several weeks ago, my wife Jossie and I uh, had the privilege of spending time with a guy named Dar Smith. Uh, Dar is ranked sixth in the United States of the triathletes in the world. He is trying to make the Olympic team at the next Olympics and then on to the next one as well. The U.S. Olympic team takes the top three. So it was fascinating hearing about his his travel and the places and what it's looked like up to this time. And we got to talking about his training. And it is an intense amount of training to be prepared for not only one significant race, but a season of races. And as he talked about training for running and biking and swimming, of course, involved in that is also diet. And his diet and what he, what he eats and all that matters because, because he could run and swim and do all the things in that way. But if he ate donuts all the time, it's going to undermine his training. 
As followers of Jesus, we are in spiritual training. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. See, it requires training to put the teachings of Jesus into practice, which is what we're talking about. It's our word for the year, practice, and it is the series that we're finishing today before we launch next week into our first practice as we do several practices throughout this year. But in the same way that we want to practice in order to become like Jesus, to be people of love, this comes out of and is launching from the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes a foolish builder and a wise builder. They both hear the teachings of Jesus, but the difference between them, one that makes them foolish and one that makes them wise, is the difference of whether or not they put the practices or they practice the, the teachings of Jesus in their lives. That they don't just hear it and then go do their own thing, but they hear it and put it into practice. And so what we want to do is be wise a wise disciple. And yet we can undermine our training. Spiritual training, gave this working definition last week, is practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus that create a time and space to access the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And by doing so, be transformed from the inside out. That's the goal transformation from the inside out. So we're talking about practices of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, prayer, Sabbath, solitude, community, eating with people far from God. Anything that Jesus did in his life was a practice of Jesus, and he says, follow me. We're not just doing them to perform exterior duties, but actually putting effort into doing what Jesus did so that there is an internal transformation which impacts then the way that we live, act, and go about our lives. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is talking about the heart. He, sa he says in many places, you could just do this and not kill your brother. But if you have anger in your heart, you might not commit adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, he's talking about the core of our lives, our heart, and needing the transformation at the core of who we are in order to be who God's designed us to be. And so we've been talking about what that looks like and how that works. If you have missed the last couple of weeks as a setup and a framework for the next for this year, I highly encourage you to listen to it or watch it online. But today, as we close out this kind of foundational launching series for the year, I want to talk about two things that will significantly undermine the practices of Jesus. Then no matter how much we want to run, if we're eating donuts all the time, it's, not go it's going to be ineffective or it's going to undercut that which we're trying to do. The first one is hurry. I have regularly quoted Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is a, uh, he has since passed, but he, for a long time he taught philosophy at University of Southern California. Uh, he's an author, and he specifically wrote a lot about spiritual formation and what it looks like in our lives. And 
somebody that, that knew him well and uh, asked him at one point, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? I read my Bible. I'm praying. Is there anything else? And Dallas Willard paused for a moment and he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Our culture is moving at a breakneck pace. And it is having detrimental effects on our souls. Our pace contributes to the pervasive burnout, anxiety, and exhaustion in our culture and in the church. There's a study done by Michael Zigarelli from Messiah University. He studied 20,000 U.S. Christians over five years. And after studying and surveying, found that the number one distractor from people's life with God was busyness. He summarized his research like this. He said, it may be, may be the case that, no, the, that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. He goes on to say that the most common professions that get caught up in this vicious cycle are doctors, lawyers, and pastors. Now, it's not me, but Nick Tompkins... As we talk about busy and hurry, there's a good busy and there's a bad busy. Good busy. Moms are good busy. Moms can also be bad busy. An executive at a company can be busy and they can also be bad busy. All of us, no matter what we do, no matter our age or stage of life, can be bad busy. Good busy is when we have a full life and we do what we're supposed to do. Bad busy is when we have too much to do and in order to do it, then we have to rush through everything. And we likely have no margin. And when that is the case, we likely need to cut some things out of our lives in order to engage in practices well. Rather than pack them into an already full schedule, which may mean cutting kids' extracurricular activities, which may mean cutting fantasy football, which may mean cutting golf, which may mean cutting shopping or trimming things down. Now, you might be like, how do I know if I'm bad busy? Pay attention to how you react to an interruption. How do you react with irritation, anxiety, or maybe even anger? could be as simple as when somebody gets in front of you while you drive. Hurry and love don't mix well. There's something about walking at a slow pace and being able to be interrupted. If you read the Gospels and pay attention to the life of Jesus, a significant amount of his ministry happens 
through interruption. Kosuke Koyama, a Japanese theologian, wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three miles an hour is the pace of walking. Imagine if everywhere you went, you ran. We may not run, but that's kind of the speed of our lives. He says love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a, kind, a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. What we're talking about is the ability to be present to God and to others. Have relationships with depth. But because of the pace of our lives, we're chasing depth in shallow waters. Speed is the enemy of depth. So as followers of Jesus, we need to manage the pace of our lives differently. Now, I could talk about this a lot, and we will. In the future, one of our practices will be slowing. But instead of taking the rest of this talk and jumping into that, I want to make sure that we give extra time to the second underminer of our spiritual practices, and that is screens. Ooh. <laughs> In the 1950s, com a computer that basically did about what a calculator does today took up the size of a room. In the 60s, our main form of communication aside from a letter or something like that from a distance was this puppy right here. A rotary dial phone for anybody who's maybe 25 and under. This is a cord <laughs> that plugs into a wall. There's nothing in here that connects to Wi-Fi because there was no such thing. So the only time you could talk on the phone was when you were connected to this, connected to a wall. And there's no button to push for that to remind you of the number that you don't remember anymore. So you'd have to write down somebody's number. This was my number when I was a kid. I don't know why you, you remember these, but five, nine, eight, five, five, three, zero. Long one. That's how long it took to dial the number. So if you met somebody with zeros and nines in their number, you're like, oh man, it's going to take forever. But this was it, 1960s. Speed up just a little bit. Invented in the 70s but became popular in the 80s was this beauty right here. This, my friend, is what's called a bag phone. It's a Motorola. This is wireless. The rest of this bag is a battery. It takes 10 hours to charge the battery, and it works for 30 minutes. <laughs> Can you imagine carrying this beauty around? Cost $4,000, by the way. <laughs> Just rocking this bad boy. <laughs> this is what life looked like. Got the dialing right there again. We're move, moving on up. In the early 90s, uh, that room of computers moved to becoming a word processor. I had a word processor in college. 
My wife, Jossie, had a word processor in college. She wrote a longer paper than I did uh, for my senior, for senior project. Took her three hours to print it once. Just had to feed one piece of paper into it at a time. By the late 90s, we went to a cell phone. Moved on from the bag phone to the flip phone. It just made calls. The internet came into a little more mainstream, and there were 600 websites by the end of the 90s. That's it. Laptops, email came out late 90s. In 1996, Nintendo 64. <laughs> 98, Google. 99, texting. 03, MySpace. 05, YouTube. 06, Twitter and Facebook. And 07, the iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> you may not want to cheer so fast here in a moment. Instagram, Snapchat, 2016, TikTok, and so on. In 2004, 45% of teenagers had a cell phone. Today, over 95% teenagers own a cell phone. So in less than 25 years, we've gone from, what's the internet? And this beauty, to I'm naked without my phone. Like, oh, where is it? What's going on? I feel naked. Now, just hold that thought for just a moment while I read a couple of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He says, fix your eyes. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell, not drive through, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze, not glance at, gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or steadfast on you because He trusts in you. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. All of these and so many others throughout the scripture require attention. It's about where we give our attention, concentration, and focus. The average length of our, time, our, our attention span, specifically for loading websites, things like that, is eight seconds. A goldfish has the attention span nine seconds. We're being beat by goldfish, everybody. And Jesus is calling us to abide. To abide in Him. Which is not a like glancing drive-through 
kind of description of whatever life looks like. It looks like fixed, ongoing, continual attention. Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist at NYU, said the cell phone is an experience blocker. Because it engages us constantly. Right? Does your phone vibrate when you get a text message or something or a notification? Even if it's sitting across the room and you hear the vibration, what do you do? You look over it and you're like, it's like you feel the tractor pull. I got to check it. Or you turn your phone on, you got red dots. I, I, I can't stand red dots. I got to resolve them. My wife, on the other hand, she has no problem with red dots with six or seven numbers in it. <laughs> Drives me insane, but it's not my phone. So, but it's like somebody constantly tapping you on your shoulder. When somebody does, what do you do? You just keep looking over. It breaks our attention. The average iPhone user touches or swipes their iPhone 2,617 times a day. In 2016, the average amount of time that people spent in front of a screen was 2.6 hours. In 2022, that number has tripled to over seven hours a day. We are being formed by screens. We are being formed by our phones. Charles Duhigg in his book, The Power of Habit, says that when our phone vibrates with a text message or any sort of notification or see a red dot, something in our brain says, check it, because it likes new things. And then it starts anticipating the distraction. This constant interruption impedes deep thinking. And only in deep thinking do we find depth and more meaning in life. Constant interruption keeps us in the shallows. And because we can't think deeply, we can't accomplish what we were meant to accomplish, which requires deep thinking. Thus, we feel emptier and live with less meaning. It's kind of like an eagle living in a parakeet cage. It's still an eagle but it can't experience what it was meant to experience. So instead of deep thinking, we've settled for doom scrolling and Netflix binges. Tristan Harris, former Google design ethicist and product philosopher, became an advocate against social media and ongoing screen use. He says, right now, most technology is intentionally designed and engineered for distraction and addiction. Tech is in an arms race for people's attention because that is where the money is. It's referred to oftentimes as the digital or attention economy. Do you know the average age of a video gamer? 35. And just so you girls don't think that you're off, 60% are men, 40% are women. And the average amount of time in one week, 13 hours playing video games. Because the next level, or a like on social media, releases dopamine. The same thing that's released for a gambler, drinking, drugs, and other addictive substances. 
So your brain gets wired to hunger for and look forward to that dopamine release. Linda Stone, former Microsoft researcher, said, continuous partial attention is our new default setting. Partial attention. Netflix was asked, who is your greatest competitor? You know what they said? Sleep. Ronald Rollheiser, Catholic theologian, wrote the book The Holy Longing, said this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. The effect is on our souls. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Now, this is not a throw away your phones, make your own shoes, and churn your own butter message. <laughs> right? I don't miss driving with paper maps. I don't miss Blockbuster. I don't miss encyclopedia salesmen. <laughs> I love that I can reference the scripture at any time. Uh, I love that the internet is available for sermon research and other things. But I want us to be aware, we need to be aware of the ways screens can or are forming us and engage it more thoughtfully. Technology does provide advancements, which we can be really thankful for. I'm not an all-technology-is-bad guy. But technology does not teach us how to use it wisely. Google, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Clash of Clans, Fortnite, looking at my boys, <laughs> Netflix, doesn't care about your soul. So we have to take our relationship with screens seriously and evaluate it soberly then rather than ingest it mindlessly. I think we can learn something from the Amish. Now some of you are like, seriously, Aaron, are you going to advocate for horse and buggies? And... Interestingly enough, the Amish are not against all technology. I don't know if you've ever been around an Amish community, but they might be in a horse and buggy, but then pull a chainsaw out of the back. And they're like, eh, uh, what, wait? The reason is because they're selective and critical about what they allow in. They test it before they allow it. Sometimes just waiting for the rest of America to like see how they do. Basically, we've become lab rats. And then they start asking questions like this. Will this new technology make our life with God better? Will it increase or decrease our love, our joy, our peace? They decided against cars because they felt that it would fragment their society because people would be able to live further away from one another and they wanted to keep proximity so community stayed stronger. But they might allow something like a chainsaw in order to facilitate more time together. I believe that we can learn something from our Amish brothers and sisters in Christ to cultivate a healthy suspicion of technology. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 60s said this, the tragedy of life is that so often we allow the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. We have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. 
And for this reason, we find ourselves caught up with many problems. That was said in the 60s when this was a big, great, awesome piece of technology. Martin Luther King Jr. was prophetic in many ways. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about some best practices. What is this big idea which some of you are squirming, thinking about in the last gathering? Somebody got a phone call and it was not on vibrate. And, uh, and then, <laughs> of all the times. <laughs> best practices. This may or may not work for you. These are invitations, suggestions, things for us to ponder. And these are only a few. There's lots and lots more, but let me just give you a, a couple. R number one, regularly fast screens. I called everybody at Mill City into a screen fast for 21 days of prayer and fasting. Some of you need to keep it going. Cut out movies, cut out social media, you know, keep screens for keeping your job. Cal Newport in his book, Digital Detox, says it takes 30 days of no screens to actually do a true reset. Some of you need to do a true reset. Or what if it becomes a rhythm that every, every year you do a month, every month you do a few days, every quarter you do a week? I don't know, whatever. Second, set times for checking your phone. Too often we check it anytime it vibrates or when we're this is, I don't know if anybody remembers this from the 90s, being bored. You know, like when you when you'd get in a line at the store and you'd stand there. Anybody who does that today is considered a psychopath. Like, what are you doing? Just like looking around, staring at people. Like, pull that thing out and look at it. Like, don't you have a message to check or some box score to... Like, only have set times of the day. Take a digital Sabbath. We'll talk more about Sabbath in the future. But what about when you take a Sabbath, you turn your phone off or you leave it in, another, leave it in a drawer for the day? Another one, manage your first and last inputs of the day. I've been doing some reading on this subject and brain researchers are finding that the Last input and the first inputs of the day have a significant dramatic impact on your sleep and your day waking hours. Specifically saying at night that you should stop looking at this one to two hours before you go to sleep. I don't know what the percentage would be in this room, but I bet it would be high that this is the last thing you look at right before you put your head on the pillow. Checking that last, did anybody text me? Facebook, scrolling, movie, whatever, has impact on your sleep. And then in the morning, if this is the first thing that we look at, or one of the first inputs of the day, it can impact our stress level throughout the day. Now you might say, um, Aaron, but this is my alarm clock, which is why the next one, you can parent your phone. If you have toddlers, uh, you, you put your toddlers to bed. Of course, sometimes they sleep with you, and that's good. But if you do that all the time, it's not good. And yet we seem to sleep with this all the time. What if we put it to bed a couple hours before we go to bed, 
and, and you, in another room, plug it in, let it charge, so you don't see it until a little while after you get up, so you're not checking your schedule, checking the news, checking if you got a text message, what happened on Facebook overnight, but this is like an hour or two later, make sure that you've connected with God before you've connected with everything else going on in the world. Wow, it's really quiet in this Methodist church today. Now, some of you are like, but Aaron, that's my alarm clock. Let me tell you something. This is an alarm clock. <laughs> I suggest something like this. There's some really beautiful alarm clocks. I did some research this last week. Um, if you'd like to buy a designer alarm clock, if you'd like, uh, this is how you turn them on and off, you know, hit the snooze. Um, you know, if, you, if that's not too beautiful, that's not beautiful enough for you, you got this little sleek, tiny little sharp doesn't no no radio. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no, no swiping. No expanding. So you could do this. Just replace batteries. Doesn't even have a plug. This is how serious I am about this. Anybody who wants an alarm clock, we have alarm clocks just like this for you out in the lobby. Anybody want this one? It's all yours. So if you need an alarm clock or if you need an alarm clock for each of your rooms in your house so that you can parent your phone and put it in another, we're going to help you today. All yours. So this is our weekly practice. Honestly evaluate. This is what I want all of us to do this week. Honestly evaluate the pace of your life and your relationship with screens and change one thing to create space for the practices of Jesus. Not keep your life the same and let's squeeze more in. Let's create more space. So that might look like deleting an app. That might look like getting an alarm clock. That might look like a digital Sabbath. One thing. Now, if we're honest, maybe many of us here need a complete overhaul. And I want you to think about that, write it out, think through a plan, all that. But we need to take one step. It's one step at a time. Some of you need to delete social media. Some of you need to think through some other ways. Mine? we putting my phone to bed in another room. I do pretty good in the morning, but nighttime is the harder one. So, alarm clock for me. I don't know what it is for you, but ask God. Think honestly through it. Think through it not just for yourself, for your kids. We don't get our kids' phones till they're 16 years old. Sorry, boys. They don't always like it. The reason is not because we're mean. It's because we care deeply about their formation. I'm not saying that if you're less than 16-year-old, has a phone, that something's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm not making any judgments. This is about you. These are some of the things we've chosen to do as a family. And I think that we want to think through it well. So, and which may mean doing something more significant. So, 
up to you, up to you and your roommates, up to you and your, your siblings or, or your spouse or with your kids. Whatever you need to do, work through it. Just in case you forget. Now this is ironic. <laughs> text practice. <laughs> to 970. <laughs> 299-9997. Like I said, I'm not saying throw your phones away. Not just for this week, but this is something we're doing for this year to help all of us because we get busy, we forget, we need to develop new rhythms and patterns. So text the word practice to 970-299-9997 and and we will text you in the week sometime a reminder of the weekly practice and an encouragement. Because sometimes you get to Sunday afternoon, let alone Wednesday, and you're like, wait, what was that again? Because we want to practice the way of Jesus together. We are committed to developing new, not just I want to do this, but new rhythms that establish transformation from the inside out. I want to end with this last question. What am I avoiding by hurrying or going to a screen? We're often avoiding pain through escape, distraction, and numbing. We're not meeting a need, we're masking one. It might be the pain of loneliness, the pain of a broken marriage, the pain of what feels like an irreconcilable relationship, the pain of shame, the pain of doubt, the pain of failure, the pain of loss. The list is endless. The pains that we experience in this world. And maybe the reason we're distracting ourselves Maybe the reason we escape so much through screens and technology is because we don't want to face the pain. But another Netflix binge, another glass of wine, another night out on the town, another level on a video game is not going to heal, comfort, or meet the need. But Jesus can, and he so wants to. He so longs to meet you right where you are in maybe the most painful or difficult place in your heart. He longs to go there with you. And you might say, well, if he cares so much, why doesn't he break in? Because it's a partnership. And so will you slow down enough to hear the gentle whisper? To have the space for the Holy Spirit to meet you so we don't live like eagles in parakeet cages. For some of you here today, you long for those needs to be met. And maybe you've chased, whether it's escape through a screen or escape through relationship or escape through just thinking I got to do life my way. But you have found depth and meaning and fulfillment lacking. You're not finding yourself becoming more joyful, peaceful, loving. And Jesus would say, come to me. Will you respond to that invitation? It's not my invitation, it's the invitation of the Holy Spirit. 
For some of you here today, you feel the tug, and it is a simple, beautiful step. And it sounds like a sincere Jesus, I surrender my life. If you just say that even sincerely under your breath, he responds to that. It is the beginning of a journey. Too often we hear that that journey is just going to be roses and tiptoeing through the tulips. I can't promise that, and neither does Jesus. But he promises to be with you. He promises to meet you in your deepest places. And he promises transformation as we walk with him. So will you take that invitation today? Maybe it's for the first time or the first time in a long time. He longs for us to meet him and him to meet us. I don't know what your next step is today, relationship with screens or speed, but I want us all to take a step together as a way of physically demonstrating that desire and our spiritual need to focus. And so we're going to take communion together. If you would, grab the communion cup that you received on the way in. If you did not get one for whatever reason, if you would, just raise your hand and one of our host team will make sure that you get one. Keep your hand raised until they come over to you. In the meantime, I want to let you know that we practice here at Mill City what we call open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, that we would love for you to participate with us because partaking in communion is not about membership in one particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. If you choose not to participate with us, that's totally fine. But we come to Jesus because in this way, because it is a reminder of his grace. The scripture says, though, before we partake of communion, we're to examine ourselves. So I want us to take a moment for a moment of personal reflection and confession. Music's going to play just softly while we just open our hearts. And like the psalmist says, search me and know me. Is there any anxious or offensive way in me? And maybe it's a matter of confessing an addiction. It's a matter of confessing an addiction maybe to a screen or technology, or maybe it's addiction to speed and a, a fast pace. Whatever it might be, would you open your heart and your life honestly before God? When we truly see Jesus, we see his greatness and our weakness. We see his goodness. And in all of that, we see his grace and our need for it. And so not only do we want to take individual time and not even in this moment, but I encourage you to make it a practice. But we also want to do it together as a reminder that we all are in need of grace. So on the screen, is a confessional prayer. And I want us to pray this together as a reminder that not one of us in this room is more in need or less in need of grace than anyone else sitting next to us or around us. So let's say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, 
We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. If you would, grab the cup and you can peel off the first layer to the bread, next layer to the juice. Before we take it together, I just want to read a passage of Scripture that talks about communion. It says, The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, so this is right before he goes to the cross, he took bread, he was eating with his disciples, and when he gave it thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was saying, this bread, what signified his body, now it's a remembrance for us. Same with his spilled blood. Remembrance in the Jewish tradition is not just, oh yeah, I remember when that happens, but remembrance is about pulling the past into the present. So we pull the past and the grace and the reality of that moment into our here and now. And the ways that he makes us whole and he washes us clean and makes us forgiven. So let's take the bread and the juice together and then I'll pray. Father, we need you. We are desperate for you, left to our own devices. We bend towards selfishness. We curl in on ourselves. But Holy Spirit of God, you've made us to reflect your image into the world. To not curl in on ourselves, but open our hearts and our lives and give them away on your behalf. So God, we thank you that your son did that in the most significant way possible, giving everything, including his life, to defeat death and break the power of sin. So may we be like him. And so we take in the grace of God that we might follow you, not just hear your words, but put them into practice by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in the name of the Father.